Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this show on July 15th, 2020. I always have to check because the days just blend into each other. I'm Anna Garcia and our guest this week is former Burbank Police Lieutenant Eric Rossoff, who also runs the Campus Safety Group. Welcome back, Eric. We're so glad to have you. Thank you uh, again for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure to see you. Tell us a little bit about the campus safety group, especially now that so many kids are not returning back to school. Yeah, it's a frustrating time for parents and students. And, uh, you know, our focus always, you know, number one focus for uh, children and staff and visitors on campus is the, the safety of those folks because kids can't learn if they don't feel safe and teachers can't teach if they don't feel safe. And, uh, you know, there are plans in place, uh, and actually each school is required to have certain um, plans, uh, but then we get hit with something like this, you know, that you, no matter how much you can plan for something, there's just really no way to see this coming and to be prepared for it. So uh, what we try to do is just make sure that each of the campuses are aware of uh, required and mandated safety plans and that they have the uh, systems and processes and tools and resources to make sure they're in compliance with those plans. So uh, we uh, enjoy it very much. Uh, we're having some good success. And as you can imagine, uh, everybody's real busy, not only to get through COVID, but to make sure that we learn those lessons from COVID so we'll be better prepared if we ever should run across a horrible thing like this again. Let's hope not, Eric. Yes, okay, ma'am. we've got... Um Two incredible cases this week. A mom in Tennessee has been accused of fatally shooting her daughter and then trying to blame the shooting on her toddler son. Crazy. And our first case that we're going to look at is there is a huge break in a 21-year-old cold case murder. A retired Jacksonville detective and his ex-wife have been arrested and charged for the 1999 murder of a business owner. 64-year-old William Bear and his ex-wife, 50-year-old Melissa Jo Schaefer, they have now been arrested in connection with this 1999 murder. It was also a home invasion robbery. And the person who they are alleged to have killed was a convenience store owner who kept a lot of cash in the house. I think what's incredible here, Eric, is that 
This case was cold for so long. They had some DNA, but it wasn't popping. And in the end, it turns out, at least based on these allegations, that it was a, a cop who had actually been investigating and surveilling this family's home. Yeah, it's um, with the technology and the curve, you know, that uh, we seem to every day somebody's finding out a new way to even stretch DNA, uh, the uh, the ability to use DNA to identify uh, possible suspects. Although they originally had DNA, the technology hadn't caught up with it until recently. And now with the genetics testing, with uh, things like the different sources where you can look at your own genealogy and that data bank uh, that, that's available, uh, law enforcement agencies are again submitting DNA samples through now what are expanded uh, databases to see if they can't come up with a hit. And sometimes they do. And that gives them a new spark, a new edge on the case to start to look at those leads. And then it, uh, things seem to fall together pretty quickly. I think a lot of people don't realize that when they submit their DNA for those genealogy websites in order to figure out where they have a lost cousin, that depending on what you check or you don't check about your DNA, your DNA is shared. And so it appears that it was through some familial DNA that they were able to figure this case out. Yeah, the landmark case was here in California, as you know, and uh, that gentleman just pled guilty. But uh, that sparked that interest across the country that well, what was that database? And you bet that those detectives here in California uh, went on a national speaking circuit about what they did and how they did it and how they accomplished it. So uh, I, I imagine this isn't going to be the last one of these types of cases that we see. So let's get into the details a little bit and, and go back in time. So this murder took place when Bear was a cop and he was working as a detective at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department. And he apparently knew the victim because he had been doing some form of a surveillance for um, a greater drug investigation. We are not alleging that the victim here was involved, but it somehow was part of a broader investigation. So the details are that 39-year-old Saeed Kawaf and his wife were ambushed about 9.30 a.m. on May 17th, 1999, outside their Deerwood home. And it's interesting they, interesting, they lived in a gated community. So the wife told police that she heard a scream moments after her husband walked out the door to go to work. So when she opened the door, she saw that her husband was being beaten and stabbed by someone in the garage. So there were two attackers, a man and a woman. The woman grabs the wife, pulls her back into the house while the male stabs and eventually, you know, the victim ultimately succumbed to his wounds. But I want to tell this case almost as if we don't know about the cop and his wife. And here's why, because I think it will help us understand how the DNA technology changed and how little information there was when this first occurred. So if you'll if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to refer to them as the man and the woman, the assailants, because I think when we reveal how they figured it out, everything's going to click for everyone. So um, apparently the victim's wife, she was pulled back into the kitchen by the female assailant and she was fighting to free herself and she bit the woman in the arm. She bit the woman who was attacking her so hard that there was a lot of blood. And ultimately, Eric, that blood helped to tell this story. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, back in 99, uh, you know, there were uh, probably uh, less opportunities to gather DNA evidence, you know, from various types of sources and blood definitely would have been one of the primary sources. And from reading the articles, there would have been or there was a substantial amount of one of the woman suspects blood at the scene. So, uh, you know, that's number one, you start to build, you know, that would absolutely be number one. So, it, it was incredible that the, the wife was fighting back so hard and, and that bite mark ultimately helped with this case. So that's one thing. So the female suspect said to the wife, I know you have money, quote, we'll shoot him if you don't give us the money. So that already, what is that telling you, Eric? Well, someone has a background on the uh, both uh, the male and female victim here, and they're aware of the fact that they're they have cash, you know, great, uh, a, a quantity of cash at hand at any given time. So the wife hands over $500 that she had in her purse, which is a lot of money to have in your purse. But the female suspect said she knew that the husband, quote, went to the bank each week, knew that he had not gone that morning and knew that he still had the money in the house. Yeah. So again, that's number two. There's someone that has an intimate knowledge of the goings and comings of the the male victim in this. If they're saying, I know what he did yesterday, uh, would certainly be an indication that we know who you are and we know a lot about you. So the man who had been stabbing the husband, you know, takes a knife, the same knife, puts it to the wife's neck and demands the money again. And this time he makes it clear to her they're not fooling around. So the wife gets up and takes them to a kitchen cabinet where apparently she had the money stashed and that's where she had $30,000 in cash. So clearly they were right. There was money in the house. No one had gone to the bank yet. So they tie up the wife. Um, they tie her to a chair. They, um, they have bound her hands and they've put tape on her mouth. Finally, after they leave, she's alive. The husband, though, has been stabbed, and ultimately he that those were fatal stab wounds. She manages to free herself, sees her husband is unconscious, manages to call the police, but by the time the husband gets to the hospital, he is now dead. So at this point, all we know for years, there was only a description that the assailants were a white man and a white woman. That is not a lot to go on. Not at all. As a matter of fact, it's um, by itself, it's a dead end, uh, if that's all I have. And on the standard investigation, you would go, you know, any homicide investigator that gets that call uh, with the information that you put together on a, you know, that we know that it's someone with a background, you'd start looking at business associates, you know, anybody that they might owe money to, but it has to be somebody with intimate knowledge about the coming and going of the family. So that narrows it a bit, but it's still a wide open case. And at this point, there's no reason to suspect that a sheriff's deputy is is the assailant here. Oh, absolutely. You see on television, sometimes the homicide investigator will say, I suspect everyone and I suspect no one. And uh, that's really not how the homicide investigator arrives at the scene is generally speaking with that amount of information. This is somebody that this family knows or as it ends up just actually knew the family and the family didn't know them. Exactly. So the evidence that was collected at the time included blood drops on a kitchen counter, along with fingernail clippings 
from Mr. Kawaf because he had resisted and in doing so, he gathered DNA on his attacker. So the Florida Department of Law Enforcement tested it all, but no DNA profile in 1999 was found to match here. Then the blood samples were sent again to a lab a few years later, a March 2003, to have them tested once again. And this time they found out a little bit more information. They found out that they had the DNA profiles, because remember, the technology was different in 2003. They found out that they had profiles for one woman and two men. And presumably one of the men would be the victim himself. So all that does is confirm what the uh, witness said, the victim who said it was a man and a woman. Yeah, you're making such a great point here on as you start to build. Right now, you can see we had a little, it was wide open, and now it's starting to narrow, you know, as the technology starts to catch up. So let's move to 2014. Okay, more evidence is tested. And this time, they have determined that the DNA that was found underneath the victim's fingernails did match some blood that was found on a shirt. So now they know, so technology is advancing enough to know that whatever was under his fingernails matched some blood also found at the scene. So right. presumably, presumably the killers, or at least the male killer in this case, had to have left some of his blood behind. Correct. Yeah, it's, uh, you can see the map now getting much clearer. That Which, you can actually, not just the people, but now you can start putting the people in places inside the house. Mm-hmm. And now you think back and you go back all these years and you, you wonder if 21 years ago when this sheriff's deputy showed up at work either later that day or, or the following day and everyone's working on the big home invasion murder, right? And that's what everybody's focused on. I'm wondering, did he appear at the sheriff's department with cuts on his hands or something on his face. Do you know what I'm saying? I just wonder if any, I mean, no one's going to remember that now, but it, I would love to have been a fly on that wall. Yeah, I would, again, you know, not being there, but having been in investigations where a group of people come together as you're doing a homicide investigation, um, it would, uh, would uh, tend to be accurate that if uh, the eventual suspect in the murder, the, the, the deputy, uh, was actually had an active case on the victim, uh, they would have been involved in the initial debriefs of this murder because this uh, detective would likely know or have some idea who the suspects might be. But I don't know that anybody in that room would actually be looking at everybody's hands or fingers, <laughs> you know, because the assumption is we are the good guys, you know, trying to go catch a criminal. And it's, um, you know, sometimes we're blinded by it, but there's nobody in that room that would think that we among us might be one of the bad people. Eric, do you think that obviously tactically that was so helpful to the alleged killer here, the, the deputy, because Bear could hear everything that was going on in the investigation. He knew what direction they were going on. And I wouldn't be surprised if he could steer the direction, the direction of the investigation in a different way and say, you know what? I've been following this guy, this drug addict. And I got to tell you, I think it was probably him. I think, uh, and actually just based on relatively similar circumstances that you're 100% correct on what would happen is that not only wouldn't there wouldn't be any suspicion on the deputy, but the deputy could actually manipulate the direction of the of the investigation by saying, 
uh, or alleging that the victim was somehow or another a drug dealer or involved in organized crime. And here are rivals or here are people that he's doing work with. And we would spend months and months trying to put those people at the scene without any thought, you know, of the fact that the $30,000 is in, you know, that deputy's, you know, wall safe at home. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back now. We're still doing the DNA testing and and we're moving along. So um, the DNA profiles of the suspects were finally entered into a nationwide combined DNA index system. And again, at that time, we're back in 2014. Nothing is still popping. Now, March of 2018, two years ago, the sheriff's cold case unit decides to take another look at their cold cases, and this is one of the cases that they review. And And we're seeing this a lot around the country, that the cold case units are revisiting these old cold cases, these murders, unsolved murders, where there is DNA, and because the technology is changing so rapidly that they just keep feeding it into the machine, as I say, and and that's why they're getting a lot of hits right now. It's not just someone you know saying, oh, yeah, I did it. We're talking about the evidence. Yeah, there's, um, uh, this is a technology uh, um, case at the end of the day. You'd like to think, you know, the, the old-time homicide investigator will tell you it's shoe leather, you know, and, you know, stick-to-itiveness, and we go out and we just keep on, you know, out on the street and getting information, and certainly, sometimes that works. But uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, there was an, uh, an icon case, a threshold case that introduced a whole new series of database and uh, um, now all of a sudden, cold case units are saying, let's go look at our cases. What do we have that we can feed into this new database? And that's why, you know, the cases like this are springing up across the country. So, as I said, March 2018, take another look at it in the cold case unit. So the samples were sent in for genetic genealogy analysis, right? So clearly, whoever the suspects, assailants, killers are, they are not in the criminal database. And that's the the database which, you know, law enforcement all share. And if you've committed a crime or you're a registered sex offender, you're in there. But other than that, you're not in there. So a cop's not going to pop. No, not at all. Um, And not that they were looking for a cop at the time. So this is what's interesting. Genealogy is going to be um, the connection here. On June 5th, the former cop comes back as a match. William Bear comes back as a DNA match. Six days later, his ex-wife comes back as a match. Now, what I'm wondering here is, um, well, actually, because they had been married, any family trees, right, that they would have logged on to and connected through uh, these websites, you know, would have connected them. Yeah. Uh, you would have imagined that somewhere along the line, you know, they some, one or both of them would have said, uh, let's not us get involved in this and let's not us let our kids or if they have children, I don't know. But the last thing I want to do is expose if I'm a criminal like that with a, I've gotten away with a murder this long, I sure as heck you know, wouldn't want that, uh, you know, potential DNA evidence to be out there. But, you know, so be it. It was out there. So now that they know who the DNA belongs to, they have to do their due diligence, the investigators do, to make sure that indeed it is a match. So investigators collected water bottles and soda cans from Bear's garbage. And 
the soda can from the trash matched the DNA found under the victim's fingernails. Bam. Game over. It's game over. Right. So the arrest warrants were issued and the two were arrested. The former cop and his ex-wife. She was picked up in Missouri. He was picked up in Florida. Now, William Bear worked in the sheriff's department for 27 years before he retired in 2002. So we we're only being given some information. Obviously, we never get it all, especially when they're um, preparing a case. But what is interesting is that the current sheriff's department, they confirmed that William Bear was a detective in the intelligence unit and that he was looking into something that had to do with the victim and a crime possibly involving the victim. Apparently, before the murder, this is before the murder in 1999, Deputy Bear had been staking out Kowaf's home as part of an investigation into allegations that Kowaf was involved in some kind of an illegal sale of pseudofedrin. So he knew, apparently through his investigation, that there was a lot of money in the house from the convenience store. We have, again, no idea what what connection, if any, the victim could have had to any of these alleged crimes that they were investigating. But the one thing that they did know was, because they probably watched him take all the money home, right? And the money was coming from the convenience store. So William Bear, he retires from the sheriff's department, and then he opens up a detective agency. I'm just letting you know that while one family is dealing with an unsolved murder of a loved one, in a parallel universe, you have the alleged killers continuing on with their lives. So he opens up a detective agency and he's working on these cheating spouse cases and child custody cases. And, you know, was obviously a credentialed investigator because he was, you know, a former sheriff's deputy. So clearly in demand. And um, I believe had really good reviews on Angie's list. (laughs) Well, I mean, if he did, if he did kill him, then he got away with murder for 21 years. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, the um, the pedigree, you know, the paperwork that, follow, you know, follows someone oh, as a police officer for this long. And, you know, I uh, people will look at the, the cover of the book, you know, and think, oh, this might be a pretty good you know fit for me. And we don't know anything, you know, what's actually inside the pages. And if you're looking for someone that might, uh, for an investigator or to see if your spouse is cheating on you or, you know, what might be going on, uh, that would be one of those things that would pop off a page, you know, 20 something years of law enforcement experience specifically related to surveillance and covert surveillance. Um, You know, well, that sounds like somebody that knows what they're doing. Plus they were police officers, so I can trust them. Mm -hmm. So I want to give you a little bit of context about what was going on at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department at the time of the killing of this convenience store owner. So there was a lot going on that was not very positive about the um, Sheriff's Department. So the backdrop right now is that the, the Sheriff's Department in the 1990s had all sorts of problems. They were facing grand jury investigations and they had officer convictions for all sorts of corruption. Bear apparently has ties to a very high-profile case that happened one year 
one year before this murder. So in 1998, there were five Jacksonville officers who were arrested in connection with the kidnapping and murder of another businessman. So apparently Bear testified for the government against the other officers. This is what's really interesting. And that led to one of the officers being convicted and sent to prison, which makes me wonder then, you know, was he was he clean? Was he dirty at that time? Was he covering up for being one of the dirty cops? I mean, I realize that's just speculation, but it's, you know, we have some facts here to base this on. Generally speaking, uh, if he's uh, called to testify, it's because he has some, you know, uh, relevant information. And uh, uh, there's two motivations for that. One is it's I've been called to testify and I'm going to tell the truth because that's what I'm supposed to do. Or the other is you better testify because we might have a case against you. And then it's self-preservation. And you know, obviously we don't have the next, you know, uh, in line to see or, you know, actually be going forward or backwards to see which one of those things it might be. But um, it is uh, interesting that, uh, you know, not too much before, not too, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't too far uh, after that testimony that he's committing, you know, basically what is a, a, a robbery and a murder, which is what those other folks were, you know, uh, convicted for. So that's, uh, uh, who, who knows, you know, and maybe that was part of the seed, you know, where you're sitting back looking saying, Okay, if they if these five guys would have just done this, they could have got away with it, <laughs> you know. And it's almost like you're starting to put it together in your head now because I'm so intricately involved in this case. I see the mistakes they made, and I'll be able because I'm smarter than them. I'll be able to get away with it. It's very suspicious. The similarities. It's very suspicious. And the uh, current investigators on this case, which are the investigators from his old employer, the Jacksonville right. Sheriff's Department, they say that the motivation for this was pretty clear. It was the money, the $30,000. So what I don't understand is, why did they have to kill the guy? I was thinking about that too, as I was um, uh, you know, uh, reading the cases. And I think that, you know, and we've talked about this before on it's just we're getting you know a part of the story through newspaper articles and such but when you just take it down to its uh, simplest uh, uh phase you would see that uh obviously bear knew that this person uh, the the victim was going to have money at a certain amount of time and he anticipated that there was going to be a big deal uh, a good deal of cash and i think most likely uh he thought that the victim was going to have the money with him uh, you know, that that wasn't a plan to have to search the house to look for the money. I think he'd been watching him long enough that he knew what the routine was and he would go to the bank at a certain time or maybe wasn't heading to the bank. Maybe he was heading to buy a pseudofedrin. Who, who knows? But the, uh, the suspect knew that the victim was going to be transporting money. And I think that going in there, um, uh, there's a pretty good uh, possibility that he really was planning on killing him, taking the money and running. But then the guy didn't have the money and it ended up being something else. Now we're a little bit farther into this because it would be a simple, uh, you know, dynamic home invasion robbery of someone allegedly who's, uh, you know, involved in some type of illicit activity. The, the suspects in this could be, you know, endless. And uh, the, the first wrinkle was the victim didn't have the money with him. Exactly. He probably thought because it was the wife, the female assailant 
who said, we know you go to the bank and you haven't been to the bank. Therefore, the money is here. Right. But I'm thinking that unless you knew exactly where the money was, uh, why would you initiate that crime? You know, you really wanted to feel pretty secure that it was going to be in, out, we're going to be done with this. And then, uh, you know, going into the house, tying up the woman and such, I'm going to tell you that uh, just on on its surface, I don't know that that was actually the original plan for the crime. Yeah, probably not. So, of course, now the family of the victim, um, they are so grateful that finally 21 years later, arrests have been made. The family put out a statement saying that we are thrilled, we are grateful, not a day has gone by that we don't miss our beloved Syed, and that was written by his niece. Also, she went on to say that the past 21 years have been the hardest, not only to be without a man who meant so much to our family, but to know that the people who did this were not held accountable for their actions. They went on with their lives. Yeah, it's, um, I uh, had um, one time in my career, we were, uh, I was involved in a cold case murder that we were able to solve it. And I had the uh, incredible fortune to go to the local um, survivors, uh, was a brother uh, and, uh, and the niece of the victim. And this was, it was a 22 year old case and the niece was only 23 years old. And I remember knocking on the door and introducing myself and saying that we'd had, we'd arrested two people for the murder of his brother. And he said almost exactly the same thing, that we can rest now, basically, was what he was telling me, that it was so unfair that his brother, who was this wonderful uh, person, you know, was taken from them and there was no accountability to it. So uh, I've, uh, you know, thank God I've never had to experience it from the other side. But um, I think that was is a pretty common reaction, maybe from people that get told that a cold case has been solved. On to our next case, which is very disturbing. A Tennessee woman is accused of fatally shooting her five-year-old daughter, and she tried to blame the shooting on her toddler son. So, Destiny Oliver was about five years old, and she was shot once in the chest and killed. Her mother is now behind bars. 37-year-old Robin Howington has been indicted by a grand jury of murder. Eric, she's being held on a $500,000 bond, and the charges are first-degree murder, child neglect, false reporting, tampering with evidence, and attempted tampering with evidence. This goes back to September 14, 2019, and her daughter Destiny was killed on that day. Now, Eric, we're going to get into this, you know, she told the police multiple versions of what she said happened. Um, when the story starts changing, is that, I mean, it's a red flag for me as an investigative reporter, but I've got to imagine it's got to be a red flag for police. Or is it that we're dealing with a distraught mother, her baby girl is dead, and maybe she's not thinking clearly? Yeah, um, you would... Responding to a case like that, you would have to uh, give some allowances for the fact that there's shock and there's just, you know, numbness as to what, uh, what happened. Um, so uh, some nuance changes in the story uh, are certainly acceptable, you know, that uh, maybe filling in some gaps or whatever, but going from it was A to it was, uh, you know, apples or, you know, something totally different 
uh, really does start to then throw up some red flags as to what actually occurred there. So she did not initially blame her two-year-old son for pulling the trigger, but ultimately she did. So um, here are the versions of the stories that she told police. So the little girl was shot in her home in Fountain City, Tennessee. She was shot in the chest. She died at the hospital. Now, at first, the mother, Howington, claimed that a man she didn't know broke into her house, shot Destiny, and then took off in a black Chrysler 300. Okay. It's possible. Right? Yeah, These absolutely. crazier things have happened. So, as she's being questioned, the mother is being questioned by police, then she changes her story. She now says that Destiny's father shot her point blank in the chest, and the mother said that it happened after a heated argument between the two of them. But here's, here's the weird part about this. She says the father took off in a Chrysler, but in this version, the car changed colors. Instead of black, he took off in a white Chrysler 300. Okay, at this point, I'm like, whoa. So, Eric, do you think it's possible that the reason the mother changed her story was because she was trying to save the child's father from getting into trouble? It's, it's such a, um, uh, I, I can't quite, you know, pin the motivation of the mother to not tell the truth right away, although certainly on a, that would be one of the reasons. But I think the initial responding officers and any follow-up officers are saying, you told me it was an unknown person. Now you're saying it's the, the Destiny's father that did it. Um, why wouldn't you have told me that right away? And you start to put that together about what is now going on in that dynamic that the, the mother wouldn't tell me right away it was the father that did it. Uh, is the father threatening the mother? Is there, you know, or maybe it's not actually the father. And when police arrive at a situation like this where a child has been killed in the family home, Aren't the immediate obvious suspects the family, the parents, and anybody else who was home? Um, generally speaking, in the, uh, a shooting scenario, um, one of the first things that would happen was anybody that was in that house would be subject to what's called a GSR or a gunshot residue test, where it's just swabs that go across, and it would even be for the two-year-old, anybody that was in that house. They would have uh, swabs taken of their hands, and those swabs can be tested to see whether or not there's any gunshot residue. Because when you fire a handgun, it leaves traces. And if we're there, you know, moments after it happened, that generally speaking across the country would have been one of the, uh, you know, investigative steps that would have been taken. But I can't speak to that agency and whether or not they had that available to them or it was immediately available or not. Most modern, uh, uh, police agencies, though, would have a test like that immediately available. There is no reference that we can find in the, the warrant that has been made available that in any way says that there was gunshot residue on the mother's hands. There is no reference to her hands or anybody else's hands being bagged. So I am going to think that they didn't check her hands. I imagine that they didn't because uh, had it, um, she's been uh, accused of murder. And, For a long time. I mean, this case has been taken a long right. time. And had there been gunshot residue on her hand, it doesn't, 
it's not a definitive test that says that you absolutely you could have handled a gun afterwards certainly but generally speaking you know within 30 minutes of arriving there her hands would have been swabbed and we would have had that information and then she would have been confronted with that information under a custodial interrogation you know uh, you know, post Miranda custodial interrogation. And hopefully then we start to get to some of the truth about what happens. But I think we have to eliminate that from this part of it because we haven't read about it. I'm just going to assume like you are that it never happened. Which makes me think that was a massive error, mistake, botch up, whatever you want to call it on the part of the cops. I'm not going to call it an error because I, they, it's not everybody has immediate access to it. Um, and so, uh, it, they, it, it might not be an error if they had it and they didn't use it, then shame on them. If they didn't have it, then we can't hold them responsible for doing something that they didn't have access to. Because again, this happened September, 2019. It is almost not quite almost a year that she's finally been charged indicted. Right. So, you know, seems to me that would have been evidence that they would have had early on. But again, we don't know for sure. Okay, so let's go back to the various versions of her story. So the latest version we heard was that it was Destiny's father who shot her and then took off. Okay, so police decide to search the surrounding area around the shooting. At least, you know, they're doing the right thing here, trying to see... Is there a gun? Because apparently, if they're searching for a gun, they didn't find a gun in the house. Right. Okay. So, they search and they find the gun in a bush outside of the mother's house. All right. Now, um, <laughs> here's what's really strange. She says, she ends up telling the police when they say to her, well, we found the gun. It was in the bushes. Oh, you know what? I asked my boyfriend to put it there. <laughs> and they're like, really? And why would you ask your boyfriend to put the gun in the bushes? So she's not budging on this. So the cops then look for, you know, home security cameras in the neighborhood. And bingo, they find a neighbor who captures some video of the mother going out putting the gun in the bushes. And so the cops go back to the mother and say, okay, you said it was your boyfriend who put the gun there. Would you like to look at this video? That's you putting the gun in the bushes. So this is the next version she tells police. Okay, you're right. I put it in the bushes. I wiped it down first to make sure that there were no fingerprints, she said, and I did this to protect my two-year-old son because he went into a closet, he grabbed the gun, and he shot his sister, and I was just trying to protect him. And actually, out of everything that she said to this point, that would become one of the more plausible explanations for what's taking place here. Yeah, honestly, had she, if that happened, which, you know, they're, they're, we're going to look at the charges a little bit more clearly, because there's something, I mean, a little bit more deeply, because I want to ask you, there's something confusing there. So, She's accused of neglect and murder. What is unclear to me is whether she actually pulled the trigger in these charges, because it is possible that the two-year-old could have been playing with a gun and shot as her sister. And sadly, these cases do happen. If that were the case, why wouldn't she tell police that unless there were other things going on in the house and she was distracted and she didn't see what went down and therefore, that neglect would reveal another set of potential criminal issues for her. 
Yeah, I think that uh, obviously I can't imagine anything more traumatic or devastating to anyone than uh, one of your children being killed. Um, if she, you know, whatever the circumstances was that she pulled the trigger or whether it was one of her other children that pulled the trigger. Um, but then as, you know, uh, the shock of that moment goes and then you start thinking, oh my gosh, the cops are going to come here. And now not only are they going to find about, about, you know, my, my daughter is dead, but there's all kinds of other ancillary things that I'm involved in now. And, um, you know, uh, uh, every one of those things are going to become exposed, not the least of which are the fact that my daughter's dead. So, uh, you know, who knows at that moment how, you know, fast somebody's brain is working, you know, related to even like the ancillary, it's almost like I can't deal with the fact that my daughter's dead right now. So I'm going to start to deal with the fact that I've got some other things going on in my life. Because apparently she later told the police that um, she was afraid that they would find out that she was allegedly selling marijuana. Because when they asked for her phone, she actually tried to destroy her phone by putting it underwater because she didn't want them to see any of the messages about her allegedly selling marijuana. So it's possible if she indeed was either dealing or dealing from her home and the kids were there that, you know, something could have happened. The kids were distracted. That could have been why she had a gun for protection, because if she's dealing drugs and she's got this operation, you got a lot of unsavory people coming into the home. So all of a sudden you're peeling it back and you're like, wow, there was a lot going on at this house. And in fact, her boyfriend told the cops that that day the destiny was shot. He saw destiny's mom pull a gun on destiny's father. That was on the day of the shooting. And he said that they were having a heated argument. And remember in one of her versions of what happened, she said that there was a heated argument between, right. um, between her and the child's father. And then that's how she was shot. So I'm wondering if there's more here. I, there's certainly, the door is open. You know, that there's, uh, we don't, uh, and even the police department doesn't have, you know, the, the full accurate story. What the police department and the district attorney have is enough to believe that she was responsible for the murder of Destiny. So I want your opinion on what the indictment says, because this is confusing to me. The indictment says she, the mother, did unlawfully kill Destiny during the perpetration of aggravated child neglect. What does that mean? That maybe she didn't pull the trigger? It's, it's a broad spectrum. And ge generally speaking, an indictment is you get the grand jury, you provide evidence to them, and the grand jury was uh, satisfied that whether she pulled the trigger or not, based on the totality of the circumstances, the adult, the mom in the house is responsible for the murder of the child. I think that's broad enough that it could actually include that the two-year-old was able to get their hands on a gun and uh, that it's not an accident based on the underlying neglect that was going on inside the uh, the home however um uh not being in the room with the grand jury i don't know but i can tell you that that probably would fit in that spectrum the unlawful murder interesting very interesting so she apparently has not entered a plea yet on the charges against her and uh no one's been able to reach her attorney for any comment but in the world of how bizarre things happen this morning there was a fire reported at the home where Destiny was shot. So the mother is behind bars. She's being held on murder charges and several other charges. The home where the child was killed, 
Um, there was a fire reported this morning. There was an elderly woman in the house, apparently a nurse who was on her way to work, saw the fire, managed to help the elderly woman get out. She's been hospitalized. There was a dog in the home. Sadly, the dog died, died of smoke inhalation. And right now, investigators are trying to figure out the cause of this fire. It could mean absolutely nothing. It could just mean, you know, just more tragedy upon tragedy. Or there could be something fishy going on there. Uh, I see this two ways, Anna. Um, the first is that if this house, uh, going back to the indictment, if there was uh, so uh, overwhelming, you know, evidence of neglect um, that uh, was in the house for all the circumstances, it might stand a reason that there would be, you know, somebody smoking in bed or, you know, some other you know, just totally unrelated to the murder that there was also a fire because this is just a place where bad things happen. Um, but I'll tell you what, the investigator in me kicks back into the uh, everything that she was trying to do to hide her phone. And the fact that we don't really have a clear picture of what took place in there, specifically about the boyfriend's comment about how the mother had pointed the gun at the father in a heated argument. Um, one of the ways, if there really is an outstanding suspect or somebody that has additional information on this case, um, one of the ways you might try to destroy evidence would be that you would set a fire. You know, so if there's something that maybe was missed inside the house or they're trying to intimidate, you know, the mother, who, you know, through prison or the woman that was still at the house maybe had some information, setting a fire would be a way that you might do that. So I'm not going to rule out, you know, something connected to this murder. Uh, related to um, uh, that fire. When you said this, this was a house where there was a lot of tragedy. You're right on that one. What sad, sad, sad story. That poor little girl. Five yeah, years that's old. Uh, I, you know, uh, as a parent and as any parent, um, uh, you know, it's paralyzing. The worst possible situation you can think of is one of your children dying. And um, I don't know, you know, how, uh, you know, People respond to that. I, unfortunately, I've been on both of these cases. I've been on cases where a parent did uh, not through a gunshot, but uh, you know through the standard, you know, child abuse and neglect ended up murdering a child. And unfortunately, a couple of times I've been there where uh, playing with guns, children playing with guns, ended up with a child being killed. And it's uh, you know, there's no the level of tragedy, you know, uh, is the child's death. How it happened is just adds to that you know, uh, tragedy. Well, clearly preventable, clearly preventable without question. Uh, at 100%, at 100%. It's time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that our listeners are talking about. A Florida jogger finds a human head in St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg police are investigating uh, this human head was found on the side of the road. The Tampa Bay Times reports that the head was so decomposed for investigators that right now they don't know if it was a man, if it was a woman. They have no real idea of age. So the human remains, well, at least the skull has been taken in for analysis. And then police are searching the area to see if there are any more human remains um, and of course, doing that backtracking, who's been missing, what unsolved murders might we have? So the jogger did say, though, um, they, they, they run that path um, routinely and noticed that the head, the skull, excuse me, was not there last time that they ran by. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything either, right? I mean, it's possible someone dumped it there. It's possible an animal dug it up. And there are a million reasons, right? And if it's that decomposed, that means 
th- that person has been dead a long time. Yeah, um, there's a, a fascinating science that uh, follows cases like this, and uh, it, from entomology, you know, because uh, there will be larvae, or um, then there's DNA evidence. There's uh, uh, a multitude of disciplines that get involved in a case like this, and you're 100% right on it. Uh, the investigator's initial thing will be let's look at local missing persons. Let's look, because we, we don't necessarily know if this is a murder or just a missing person, an accident, whatever it might be. And then there's also the, um, the ecology around the, the, the area, you know, that um, when uh, a body will decompose, uh, uh, one of the things that happens and will uh, local uh, animals, coyotes or, you know, whatever it might be, actually will frequently take the head. And uh, relocate it to different places. And really? Oh, absolutely. In classes, I've been to classes like this, and they'll tell you it's almost like playing with a ball that they'll um, uh, grab the head and move on with it because they can't eat it. <laughs> and it, uh, it's something that they'll just move from one place to another. Uh, wow. So, you know, it's, you know, uh, how far back do we go where the dog buries a bone, <laughs> you know, type of a thing. And that's, uh, it happens in cases relatively frequently. So, Depending on the local wildlife and the ecology of the area and such, it could be uh, that uh, the actual remains would be several uh, miles away, you know, and then just over a period of time, it got moved from one place to another to another. So this is going to be one of those, again, a technology case that there will be some sort of scientific information that will help us get closer to man or woman you know, age, uh, maybe you just catch a huge break and who the person is, and mm-hmm. then investigators can really start into it. But up to then, now it's just a, it's a science case. Wow. Well, uh, you learn something new every day here on True Crime Daily, the podcast. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. So th- these are some of the comments. Josh A. writes, it's Florida. Sounds like a normal Tuesday. <laughs> We do get a lot of weird crime cases out of Florida. And it's so funny because I do read this a lot in the comments. It's Florida. It's Florida. Um, Kristen R. writes, how horrific for the jogger. Absolutely. I mean, that that it has to be incredibly traumatic. And Donnie S. writes, Gator was on a diet. Remember, eat till you're satisfied, not until you're stuffed. I don't think a gator would have moved it, though. It's interesting what you said. Gators are different. They don't they don't really eat the whole thing. Yeah, I, you know, I've. Uh not from Florida, you know, so and I wouldn't want to ever, you know, come across the business end of, a, of an alligator. But if you go back to a map and look around, and I'm sure pretty quickly, they can say that, you know, what type, if it was moved by an animal, what type of animal would that likely be? And then again, the that science kicks in and says, what's the normal migration or, you know, territory of whatever animal was most likely to have moved it? And that opens up then the search parameter to look for the additional remains. The other case is one that uh, went viral. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the woman in Central Park who falsely accused a black bird watcher of trying to attack her has finally been charged by the police. She has been charged. Amy Cooper was recorded on camera falsely telling 911 dispatchers on May 25th that she felt threatened by an African-American man. So... The man was in Central Park bird watching, which is a huge place for bird watchers. As a bird watcher myself, I know this. I can confirm this. So he he was videotaping how she was reacting to him because he said to the woman, "Please put your dog on a leash." 
it's the law. And you are not allowed to have dogs off leash in Central Park. It's a highly urban, highly populated park. So those are the rules. She took offense, apparently, to him telling her what to do. And that's when she started losing it. And he was videotaping it. And and she knew full well that she was being videotaped, yet she still became unhinged, called the cops, told a lie. And so uh, Cooper, who is 41 years old, surrendered to the Manhattan DA's office on Monday, and she was charged with one count of falsely reporting an incident to police. Since that happened, since the video went viral, she's been fired from her job. And the dog that she had at the time, if you remember the video, while she's she's barking at the man, you know, she's she's really come undone. She's holding the dog and and like she's lifting the dog in the most dangerous way that is, you know, she's threatening the dog because of the way she's handling him. I mean, like lifting the dog up. It was horrible to watch the whole thing. Anyway, that dog was a rescue. She adopted that dog. The rescue group took the dog back. So, um, you know, she has since apologized. But there are so many things that woman did wrong. So many things that were offensive. So many things that show that she is so entitled. It, it's revolting. So. Well, there's a uh, there's a line in prosecution, right, where you say uh, we're you know we're not the politeness police. Um, so I appreciate the fact that actually it would certainly appear that the district attorney weighed everything that was going on, and you know there was certainly I, I imagine there was a lot of pressure on the district attorney's office to file some type of charges. And I like to think that the NEDA anywhere in, you know, their prosecutorial, you know, um, uh, you know, discretion that they have are thinking, what is to the greater good here? What, how are we going to, you know, uh, remedy this situation? And most importantly, do I actually have the elements of a crime that are, I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt in court? And they, they got to that, you know, that I think, that, you know, with this videotape and everything else that was going on, including, I think it's part of the decision to prosecute, um, the language and what she was saying was definitely one thing, but I think what probably played into it was how she was dealing with the dog as well, you know, that it was, this was someone that really did, um, uh, was totally out of control and created actually, number one, sucked resources, 911 resources and police officers out of what they should have been doing. Um, and, uh, there's gotta be a penalty for that. Uh, there has so, to be, you know, yeah. she, she appears, she, no, she clearly lied to police. I, I'm going to, you know, stop muzzling my, uh, you know, is the journalist always trying to walk a fine line, never accuse people of things. I'm sorry. She lied. It was wrong. You can't be calling the police on people, you know, right. and making things up about people. And then what if there hadn't been, if he had not recorded that videotape, what if he had been arrested for doing nothing? That, that actually is the, the greater point here is that um, I think that, uh, in our effort, you know, to protect everybody that's involved in it, that um, a person that is willing to make those false allegations has to understand that there's consequences. And the community at large has to understand that we're, you know, uh, uh, we're, we, we need to, sh uh, to show these types of events for exactly that reason, because how many times have people been falsely accused? And whether prosecuted or not, then that's that stain that follows the person that's been accused and it proliferates, you know, stereotypes and injustices and the rest. So um, I think this is one of those cases. And in the world, right, 
it seems like it's just a minor event in a park. And But here we are talking about it. And I think it's just one of those um, opportunities for progress. You know, and there's the fringe elements on both sides, you know, that'll, that'll go nuts. But I like to think the rest of us are in some type of parameter of fairness. And let's make sure that everybody gets treated fair. And she committed a crime. Now, I've received calls and responded to calls where someone would say they would like goose up the circumstances. They would say, oh, there's a, there's a prowler. And I think he has a gun, right? And we'll get there. And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted you to get here fast. So I said, I thought they had a gun, but they really didn't. The underlying thing was there really was a prowler, right? So it wasn't like they were lying about what was going on. There really was a prowler. But then it puts, you know, the police officers in a horrible position because now I'm responding to someone that I think has a gun, you know, and you can see how that ramps up. And so I think it's important for using cases like this and everybody else's just to say, make sure that you're telling the truth, because if you're not telling the truth and you're going to take a resource from this community, there's going to be consequences for that. So these are some of the comments uh, that are being posted. Eric C. writes, good. She should be charged with animal cruelty, abuse, and misuse of 911 emergency. Lucky D. writes, 41 years old, still acting like she's in high school. With all that entitlement, age is really nothing but a number. And Taj L. writes, she's only charged because she's in the spotlight. Hope some good comes out for all involved. Well, hopefully everyone is learning a lesson there. That's it uh, for the program this week. Eric, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving us some insight into some of these stories. I learned some new stuff today. If people want to follow you or find out more about you, where can they find you? Uh, CampusSafetyGroup.com. And uh, once again, it's always such a pleasure to hang out with you for a little while, Anna. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, hang out in my house anytime, Eric. <laughs> Uh, of course, if you want to find me, I'm at Anna G News on all social media platforms. As you all know, I try to read almost all your comments, and that can be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments. And um, what I really love about our listeners and our viewers, depending on how you consume this podcast, is the theories that people have about what happened. And because we've got these two murder cases, I can't wait to hear everybody's theories on what they think really went down, especially with that cold case. As always, uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, of course, on YouTube. You can get updates on what's going on in crime by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia, and as we traditionally say, don't do crime.